so you have your, you have your Bibles, and uh, I want to see if you can find the little book of Habakkuk, and if you can find Habakkuk somewhere, and then I'll be back next week after you found it, and we'll finish up, all right? So uh, you might have to use the table of contents. Uh, don't be embarrassed. The deacon next to you can't find it either. It's okay. It's all good, Habakkuk. And um, I'm just going to preach one, uh, one message from this little book. We're not going to do the whole book or anything, so uh, just doing that, I hope to start uh, the book of Daniel in October, and so we'll we'll begin there in October, and so between now and then we'll have a couple of just uh, different expository sermons from different parts of the Bible here. Now, um, you may think that you don't know this little book of the Bible. You think, I've never heard of this in uh, Habakkuk, and some people call it Habakkuk. How would you like to be called Habakkuk? You know, so Habakkuk, but you say, I don't, I don't know anything about this book of the Bible, but you have heard things and words from this book. What about this? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Have you heard that before? That's from Habakkuk, of course. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You've, you've heard that as well, I'm sure. Um, and possibly you've heard these words, the just shall live by faith. You thought Paul said that. Paul is good at just uh, taking everything out of the Old Testament and putting it into a little different form. But it's from the book of Habakkuk that uh, the Reformation was ignited. And Martin Luther read these words and realized that through Catholicism, the just were not, uh, the just were not uh, justified or they did not live by faith. But instead, the attempt was to be justified by works. And so he recovers the gospel and begins to proclaim it. And of course it cost him dearly. But uh, this, is, this verse is the basis for the Protestant Reformation. And so the book of Habakkuk is not totally foreign to you. You've heard some parts and pieces of it in your life. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. And I want to talk about the hope of revival. When I was a kid, our church used to schedule a, a meeting each fall. Fall of the year. And um, a lot of times you would do that out in a big tent somewhere. I do not know why. Uh, to this day, I don't know why. Why do Christians do weird things? Um, just, we're going to do it in a tent, you know, and um, so that mosquitoes will eat us up. I, I used to preach these in Florida. And I was thinking to myself, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, can we not go in the church building where there's air conditioning? And the mosquitoes and the, the little gnats would just be eating you alive. So, but we'd have these meetings, you know, you, you call them what? Revival. We're having revival at our church. Why don't you come? So we're having these uh, meetings. We call it revival. We're having revival. And usually these meetings would be evangelistic in nature, really. You would have, think about this. You would have an evangelist come in and preach revival. Think, think about that. Because you, you can't revive something that's never, never been vived to begin with. And so uh, the, the church would have the understanding or the idea or the thought that the purpose of these revival meetings was to get the sinners to come to the tent and walk the sawdust trail. And so, uh, and come to Jesus. And, you know, that's not all bad. It's not an all bad thing. It's, you know, people come to Jesus through those things. And it's all good. 
But really that's not revival. That's an evangelistic meeting. So what is revival exactly? What is it? And the second question would be this. Can revival be scheduled? I used to schedule them. Uh, I, a couple of times I had a guy out of uh, First Baptist Woodstock, their staff evangelist, he would come preach or some high-powered preacher out of First Baptist Houston or whatever would come. And um, they'd send a notebook ahead of time that stinking thick. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm the pastor and I've got to do all of this, but the love offering's for you. I see how this works. And so you'd work through all these things, you know, and and it wasn't, the the activities were not bad for the the well-being, the spiritual well-being of the congregation. Actually, we'd do prayer meetings and different things. Not a bad thing. But in the end, the person who came to preach, their bread and butter was to be able to put in their newsletter, we saw X number of people get saved. And that's how they get the next revival. And so can we, is that revival and can that actually be scheduled? And then what are the circumstances which God usually works in by which he brings revival? What does God usually do before there is revival? Well, when you read the book of Habakkuk and you read those first two chapters... What you usually find that precedes revival is hardship. And that God brings some devastating discipline upon his people. And drives them to a point of selfless despair. In which everything they had been depending on, everything they had hoped in, was taken away. And they had no option left in their life but to look up. Then God can bring revival. I'm not sure we want that. I I think what we want is more comfort and an easier life. And if God can fit into that somewhere, then so be it. That's good. But I don't think we really want that. I don't know many Christians or churches that are desperate for those kinds of circumstances to come about in order to cause the people of God to begin to look to Him in desperation and hope and faith again. Revival is about rejuvenating the spiritual condition of the people of God. The problem with America is not the White House. It's God's house. We are not what we ought to be. We're not doing what we should do. We've placed our hope in people that sit on Capitol Hill and pursue their own well-being as if that's supposed to help everybody else. We put all of our hope in that. We've put our hope in the school systems. We've put our hope in community action. We've put our hope in everything that you can think of, every program that you could possibly conceive of. We put our hope in all of those things as the people of God. And we've deemed ourselves as the church irrelevant. We don't do what we're designed to do. Instead, we join in with what the world does to try to cure all the ills of society. It's more comfortable that way. But that's not how revival works. 
What must we do? Well, I'll give you three realities here and then you can decide what to do with it. First of all, we have to revere God's incomparable person. We have to come to the place where once again we have reverential awe of the incomparable person who is Yahweh God. Now look in verse 1 and 2. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Say that fast like six times. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. And of your work, O Lord, do I fear. Notice something about the prophets. In our day, we have those who have a weird view of the Bible and claim that they're a prophet or the gift of prophecy is still intact and all that. But if you notice something about the prophets, they seem to pray more than they preach. Have you ever noticed that? And here we have Habakkuk with a prayer here. And he's, he's praying. And so notice that his prayer is insightful. If you're going to honor God and revere his person, his incomparable person, then in our, pray, our prayer has to reflect that. And so you see his insightful prayer. And what's it based upon? It's based upon the attributes of God. Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you. Habakkuk had been listening to what God had been saying. About the discipline that was coming upon the nation of Judah. And Habakkuk was arguing with God on this basis. God, I know we're bad. But we're not nearly as bad as the Chaldeans. So therefore, why would it be your plan to bring the Chaldeans to subdue and humble us when they are worse than we are? And so Habakkuk is trying to argue against God's version of justice and the issue here is that God is not bringing judgment if he's bringing judgment then justice has to prevail what God is bringing is discipline and discipline is a different matter discipline is not penal this is not about bringing a penalty upon Judah this is about saving Judah from herself this is God Doing the the worst possible thing that Judah and Habakkuk could imagine. The Chaldeans were these ruthless, frightening terrorists. They were well known for impaling people. They were known for taking wire and fishing it through people's jaws. One after another after another. And dragged them off like that to captivity. They were known for rape and plunder. And God had announced that he had, ra- he had raised up the Chaldeans to come and humble Judah. And at this point in the book of Habakkuk, we find that Habakkuk finally stops arguing and starts listening. And he says, I have heard the report of you. I've heard your report, Lord. I've heard what you're going to do. You're going to take away all of our comfort. You're going to take away our prosperity. You're going to take away our protection. You're going to take away our freedom. You're going to take away everything that we hold dear. 
so that we may learn to revere you again. I hear the report of you. Habakkuk shows us here that the only way to pray right for revival is to hear what God says about our need for it. Why do we need it? What's wrong with us? Why are we not hearing what God says on a daily basis? Why do we continue to live as we want to live? Rather than being arrested by the word of God. Matthew Henry reminds us of this. If we turn a deaf ear to God's word. Then we can expect no other. Than that he would turn a deaf ear to ours. Habakkuk had finally heard God. And now he's ready to pray. That's his insightful prayer. It's based upon the attributes of God. Who God is. You see, Habakkuk had been praying according to who Judah is and according to he is. They, he, that was the center of his prayer, myself and my people. And now he turns the corner and says, no, wait a minute. The center of prayer has to be God and who he is. And so now he's ready to pray and pray about revival. So it's based upon an insightful prayer of God's attributes. It's also reverential prayer because of God's actions. Notice he points out, I've heard the report of you. But he also says this, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. When God intends to awaken his people to their need for spiritual, soul-shaking revival, it is a work that is frightening. God has to shake us before we become awake to our need. And here Habakkuk uses the word fear. And it means to stand in awe of God. Do you know the reason that we drift so far from God relationally speaking? Do you know why we are so cold to him emotionally speaking? The reason is, is because we're not awestruck by God. See, many of you sitting here today, you're bored about God. Just bored out of your mind about God. You came here because your wife finally nagged you long enough and you figure if you would come, maybe it would help things at home, so you're here. Others of you have teenagers. That'll bring you to Jesus. And so you're thinking, man, I've got to get the kids in church, man. I've got to get them in church. You think that's the magic pill. Just get them in church. And so you're going to do that. Others of you got other problems going on in life, like I need to get in church. And so you're, you're here today. Thank God you're here. It's better than being in jail. It's better. But the, the, the thing is, you're present here. That's, that's a good thing. But the real question is, are you awestruck by God? If till you get to the point that you're awestruck by God, then you'll continue to be emotionally and relationally distant from Him. You'll be cold as, uh, as, as ice in your heart toward God. Why? Because you're not awestruck by Him. The beginning of revival is when we become awestruck by God. And sadly, God has to do some radical things so many times in our lives and also in the life of a church in order for us to become once again awestruck by God. We take Him for granted. We assume he'll always be here. We comfort ourselves with verses. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I'm with you always the very end of the age. Cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. And all of those things are absolutely true. But we use them to give ourselves an excuse for ignoring him. 
The word Lord here, you see the capital letters again, it's Yahweh, meaning what? The existing one. The one who exists. That's all that can be said about God. The one who exists. Where did he come from? He's the one who exists. Does God change? He's the one who exists. Will God ever not exist? He's the one who exists. We're the ones who came into being. Not him. He's always existed. The fear of the Lord then means this. It means to be awestruck by his incomparable otherness. It is the opposite of apathy. The reason we're not moved by God anymore is because we think he's just like us. Kind of a tame God. Not very dangerous at all. And we need to remember what God can do. His works, according to Habakkuk the prophet, are to be feared. Revere God's incomparable person. The first element preceding revival is just that. To learn to be awestruck by the incomparable God who is called Yahweh. That's the first step. Until we come to that point, there's no hope. There's no change. Everything goes just like it is until we come to that point. When we come to that point, then we're ready to request God's reviving power. And look what Habakkuk says in the second half of verse 2. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Requesting God's reviving power. It's a given that God's going to bring discipline upon his people. Habakkuk has accepted that. But now he's asking, Lord, in the midst of that, can you not bring some mercy? Now, first of all, in requesting God's reviving power, we have to realize the aim of revival. Notice what he says, revive it. And he uses the word mercy. The prophet here is praying for God to revive the merciful and favorable work in the lives of the believers in Judah. The believers that still, the remnant that still existed there. Save the whole nation for the sake of the remnant. Save the whole nation of Judah for the sake of the elect. Not everyone in Judah was a believer. Not everyone in Judah was a follower of the Messiah. Only some. Habakkuk knew how you had salvation. By faith. He wrote it here. By faith. By faith in what? In the coming Messiah. But not everyone in Judah understood. They were waiting for someone to give them political deliverance. They were waiting for someone to fix the southern border. No, the northern border for them. They were waiting for someone to fix the economy. They were waiting for someone to kick the foreigners out. They were waiting for someone to come and return life to the way it's supposed to be. That would be the Messiah in their view. And because of their viewpoint, they missed salvation altogether. But in the midst of all of that and all the misunderstanding and all the misinformation, there's still the remnant, still the elect, still those who truly believe. 
And Habakkuk is pleading with God on their behalf. Lord, in the midst of this, don't forget your people. In the midst of it. So the aim of of revival is this. It is to revive or to bring back to a place of of relationship with God the people that are really His. He, Habakkuk's not asking God to return everything to the good old days. He's not asking God to repeat past actions. He's not asking for encore. But he is pleading with God to return to a merciful outpouring of the Spirit of God. Judah had experienced revivals before on more than one occasion. A massive turning of people in Judah back to God. And they would return to heartfelt worship and service of the one true God. And God can only do this for people who have spiritual life. He can only revive those who have life to begin with through Jesus. He can't revive those who are dead and trespasses and sin. They need resurrection. That's a different matter. But Habakkuk is praying here and interceding for God's people. Realize the aim of revival is to revive them and to show them mercy. But also this, recognize the availability of revival. He says, in the midst of the years. Do you see that in verse 2? In the midst of the years. Meaning what? Something like, we might say something like this, like in our day. Lord, in our day, would you do this? In our day, remember mercy. In our day, revive it. Now, we want to be careful right here. Revival for the church does not, and we should learn this from Judah, but revival for the church does not have anything at all to do with the national economy, national policy, or national politics. It has nothing whatsoever to do with that. What we're talking about here is spiritual rejuvenation in the souls of the people who genuinely love Jesus. That's what revival is. Now, most of us don't have any idea what that is. We've never seen it in our lifetime. In our lives, most of the time, God's people, it's the same this Sunday as it was last Sunday. And our lives are just on a, on a straight line. Just, okay, we're just moving on little by little, keep going. There's something to be said for the spiritual ability of plodding along. A lot of times in life we do have to plod along. But I wonder if we're getting to the place now in this area of the world and the condition of the people who claim to know Jesus. I wonder if we're getting to the place where our spiritual condition is such that it's going to take an emergency rescue act by God in order to preserve us. Again, we're not talking about any policy that America might, might make. The churches in England have the same need that we have. The churches in Mexico have the same need that we have. The place where the need, probably there's no need for revival, is probably in China. Ironically, why? Because they're already going through chapter 1 and 2 with their government turned against them. So let's test our hearts right now. And this is dangerous for me because people tend to draw assumptions and do not listen to words. But I'm going to risk it for your sake, not mine. Would you be willing? Now, I want you to think about this in your own heart right now. 
Would you be willing to pray for the extinction of the United States of America if it meant the eternal salvation of hundreds of its people? Let that sink in a minute. Think about what that would mean for you. Think about the hardship that would bring in your life. Think about the difficulty and tragedy it would be for your children. Think about the the ruin that it may bring to your own personal finances. Think about the fact that it may cost you your job. Some, let's say, let's say a communist government takes over as a result of our prayers. Meaning the outlawing of Christianity. Jail time for anyone who professes Christ. But would you be willing to pray for the extinction of the United States of America if that meant the eternal salvation of hundreds of people? You see, here's the thing. Our individual answer to that question tells us where our hope is and where our heart is. Would you be willing to give up your Second Amendment right? You see, some of us argue vehemently for those things and we won't argue one whit for the gospel. If this hardship would cause people to consider the condition of their souls before God, would you be willing to pray for it? That's what Habakkuk's going to do. That's what he's going to agree with God about. He's agreeing here with God. I've heard it. I've heard what you're saying. I'm going to agree with it. You need to bring it. You have to bring hardship upon your people. You've got to bring discipline upon us. Because we're just not getting it. We're drifting further and further away from you. Our hearts are just cold as ice toward you. Our ways are hardened toward you. You have pleaded and you pleaded and you pleaded with with God's people through the prophets and through the preaching of the word. And they have not heard. So God, I'm agreeing with you. You're going to have to bring the Chaldeans. You're going to have to do it. You're going to have to demolish us. You're going to have to humble us. You're going to have to annihilate us. But the important thing is the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of Judah. And so therefore, God, do what you have to do. But in the midst of it, God, be sure that you do not forget your people. In the midst of all of the wrath, remember mercy. Remember that the point of it, God, is to turn us back to you. The point of it is not to do away with us, but to bring us close to you again. Don't forget the reason, Lord. Do not let your wrath go unchecked. You see, I fear that for many of us, the answer to the question that I just asked, that your allegiance would be somewhere else besides the kingdom of God. Even though Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. I fear that for many of us, that's not our first priority at all. 
And so, the church continues to be an add-on. It's considered even by the people of God to be a tool for the promotion of our country. And whatever the country does, then the church is obligated to support that. And we don't realize that many times the kingdom that's being built in this country is at odds with the kingdom of Jesus. Do you understand what I'm telling you? We're at a breaking point here. We're at a crisis point where we live. We are citizens of a great country. But it is a country that has completely turned its back upon God. And now the people of God that are in this country are also drifting far from God. We're at a crisis point. And you and I must see clearly that there are two kingdoms at war now. There's the kingdom of Christ and there's the kingdom that calls itself the United States of America. Now what do we do? Well, we just studied Advocations. We're not here to attack America. Our warfare is not according to flesh and blood. The thing about it is we attack our enemy with peace. We attack our enemy with good news. We attack our enemy with the gospel. Why? Because we want to make them friends of God. That's why we continue to exist. We're to be the conscience of a society. We're to be the ones who bring the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's our message. Not keep on doing what you're doing. You guys are the kingdom of God yourselves. Way to go Nebuchadnezzar. But for many of us, that's where our hope is. We add a little church on, uh, on the end because that's what Americans do. And so we put a little church in there and that's good. That's a good thing. Yay. And in the meantime, slipping further and further and further away from God. So we have to recognize this. It's not hopeless. That the availability of revival is there. But we have to see the issue clearly. We have to recognize who needs revival. And we have to ask God to do it. The aim is the revival of His people, not the revival of a nation. It's not the revival of Judah proper. It's the revival of the elect in Judah. Then you're hoping that the elect then will have such love for God that they go out and find the other elect, right? If that's your theology. That's what's supposed to happen. But we want God to save everybody and not bother us. That's what we want. And that's just not the way it works. And Habakkuk had to come to that place where he's like, okay, God, I'm going to give in. You're going to have to bring hardship. You're going to have to bring difficulty. You're going to have to bring some awful things. But in the middle of that, Lord, in, in our day, in the midst of those years, would you remember mercy? Well, you have to rely on the author of Revival as well. And here he's, you know, you see Habakkuk crying out, Oh Lord, oh Lord, you see that all through this. And so he's looking to God. Now this doesn't mean that we're passive in revival. But it does mean that only God can change hearts, even our own heart. My job is, for example, to read the scriptures. 
and then to meditate on the scriptures and then to pray the scriptures back to God and talk about what God has shown me in the scriptures. That's an activity that I must do. Will it change my heart? No. Unless God changes my heart while I do that activity. You see? It's still up to God. And so that's why we pray. That's why we ask Him. Lord, You are sovereign in revival. Would You not change Your people's hearts? Would You not draw us back to You? I was reviewing again about Jonathan Edwards. And that this is that God is the author of revival is made very clear by his account of what happens in Northampton, Massachusetts. He calls his recounting of it and his writing about what God was doing, he calls, he calls it a surprising work of God. Jonathan Edwards is pastoring his church and he has the expectation that the rest of us do. Hope we can make it through Sunday. And then all of a sudden, something weird happens at this church. The young people of his church come to him and say, Pastor, can we talk to you for a minute? And he was like, oh boy, wonder what they've done. And they said, Pastor, we've been talking. And we've decided we're going to listen to what you say from the pulpit. And we're going to obey God. Just that simple. And he's like, okay. And so they do. And the town begins to see the change in the young people. And so they're, they're, the people are watching and they're like, okay, let's go hear what this pastor is preaching. Now, a lot of people, you know, you, you read your history books or your literature stuff that you, uh, you know, at, at school. And they talk about the great awakening. And so what sermon do they talk about? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Well, that was not the one. That wasn't the sermon, the sermon that God used. Instead, he began to preach about justification by faith to his people, his church. And he began to preach this. And he reports that the Spirit of God began to extraordinarily set in, that's his words, and wonderfully work among us. And the result is that the whole town was changed. The church, this little church became alive. And in a little more than six months, 300 people were converted to Christ. Now you think, well, okay, that doesn't sound like Billy Graham. I think the town only had like a thousand people in it. So in six months, 300 persons were converted. It's God's work is the point. Edwards had no earthly idea. There was no method here. There was no notebook that came and says, here's how you plan a revival. There was, there was nothing like that. Instead, it was faithful preaching and a handful of young people that said, we are going to obey God. God's work, not something orchestrated by people to produce some kind of artificial movement of people that makes it look like revival. You've seen that before. We schedule the Christian circus and just move a lot of people through. And God's people being so undiscerning think to themselves, well, God's really at work. And you see no change in people's lives. You just see movement of their feet, but you don't see change in their lives. This is God's work. We have to rely upon Him. I'm 
I preach about revival all of my ministry. And only seen just glimpses of it here and there. But let me say this to you. If a single follower of Jesus has his or her heart re-inflamed with love for Christ, that's revival. It may not be everybody, but it can be somebody. And maybe that somebody's you. Then what? <clears throat> when God does this, what do you do then? Then rejoice in God's glorious presence. In verse 3, look at this. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. Now, rejoicing in God's glorious presence, there is praise for His holy person. He calls, uh, Habakkuk calls Him the Holy One. What does it mean for God to be the Holy One? Let me give you the short definition. Pure and flawless. One writer said, to be holy refers to God's radical and dangerous otherness. Praise of His holy person. And then praise His kingly power. It says His splendor covered the heavens. Do you see that? Verse 3. True revival brings a deep and intense awareness of the holiness of God. An undeniable assurance that God is the one who's doing this work of changing our hearts so that we will love Him intensely once again. That's what revival is. And it only comes about by the power of God. Do you know what Habakkuk is doing here? He is envisioning, in verse 3, he's envisioning revival as if it had already taken place. Why is he doing that? He believes it's going to happen. Does believing it's going to happen make it happen? No. But believing who God is and knowing what God will do allows us to believe that it will happen. God wants to revive His people more than they want to be revived. But God's not interested in bringing some kind of artificial movement among us. He wants to recapture our hearts. Our hearts that have been dragged away by the world, by busyness, by just earthly stuff that we have to deal with every day that causes us not to have thoughts of God because we're so busy with everything else. By the little gods that are out there that capture our affection and carry us away. All of those things have invaded the people of God. Do you know what God, you know what the pattern is for churches in America now? Here's the pattern. Let's find a celebrity pastor. He will draw all the people and we don't have to do anything. That's the formula now. But I think that the formula is supposed to be, as Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. I think that's what the formula is supposed to be. But we have stopped doing that. We're thinking, well, you know, we don't want unsaved people to hear too much of the Bible. They might get scared. We, we don't want to tell them too bluntly that they have sinned and rebelled against God. It might make them mad and they turn away from Jesus. Folks are already turned away from Jesus. Tell them the truth for God's sake. 
Tell it clearly. But you know why we don't? Because our heart's not full of affection for Jesus either. That's why we don't. So revival is about regaining that. Regaining it on a personal basis, but also regaining it on a corporate basis as the body of Christ. Habakkuk envisions that. And the splendor of God and the earth is full of his praise. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if you woke up tomorrow and instead of being obsessed with the earth being so full of evil, as you turn on the news and you watch Fox and Friends and you're then inundated by all of the things that are wrong in this world and that truly they are wrong. Truly it, it is wrong. But wouldn't it be great if you had a fresh touch of God And you said, you know, all that's wrong, but here's something else I know. The earth is full of his praise. You'd see life differently. You'd have a new perspective about things, a new attitude about things, a new attitude about yourself, (laughs) a new attitude about people around you. Life would be different with a heart full of affection for Jesus once again. Folks, I'm not talking about church attendance and Sunday school attendance and daily Bible reading and prayer and I'm not talking about those things. Those things are supposed to be tools to stir up our affections for Jesus. But what happens is we start doing those things as a substitute for affection for Jesus. And we drift further and further away from God even while we're doing the things that God intended to use to help us to love Him more. So what shall we do? Hmm. Well, it could be true that we see some frightening discipline upon the churches of the Lord Jesus in our day. About one more round of COVID ought to shut about half of them. Yep. Hanging on by a thread anyway. I had a preaching professor one time that said, Boys, some of y'all need to go out and give these churches a decent burial. They're just walking dead. They're an anti-testimony for Jesus. You know, they, they, they get together and heartlessly sing, have a terrible sermon, and then have a business meeting and fight. That's their church life. That's what they do. So there may be some terrible discipline coming upon churches of the Lord Jesus. But here's the thing to remember. There's always hope for revival. There is hope. You you can't give up hope. There's always hope. But we must do what Habakkuk did. We must accept the fact that discipline is needed upon the people of God. And it is not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be pretty. And it's going to probably affect our lives because we need it too. But accepting that from God as a step toward Him. That's not a step away from Him. That's a step toward Him. Accepting that from God then enables us to pray, but Lord, in the midst of it all, in the midst of the years, as we're going through this, in Your wrath, remember mercy. Don't forget revival. And we can ask Him to revive us again that our hearts may rejoice in Him, Psalm 86. Asking God for it. Do you know what it is? Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what revival means? Do you recognize the need for it? Or are you just okay? 
Are you okay with status quo? Just, just fine? Or do you recognize the need for it? When you recognize the need for it, then it becomes a topic of prayer. When it becomes a topic of prayer, then God begins to change your heart. You'll experience revival in your own heart. Perhaps some others around you will. And what you'll find is that people begin to notice Christ in you, the hope of glory. They don't look at you as just a religious person. They look at you as someone who has the glow of Jesus, the glory of Jesus on them. And it makes all the difference in the world. It makes a difference in your home. It makes a difference in your life. It makes a difference at work. It makes a difference in our world. It makes a difference in our community. So what I would encourage you. You know, do you know why you have the YMCA here in this town? Do you know why it exists? Do you know how it got here? Anybody know? The Great Prayer Revival of 1857-1858. One of the results of that revival was the YMCA. You know what I had to do YMCA? Didn't have enough churches to hold people. So many people turning to Jesus didn't have enough churches. Had to have places for people to even go. Because the churches couldn't hold them. Building churches faster than, than they could build. See, see what God can do. God can do in a few, just a few years. Do you know what preceded that great revival? Millions of people came to Jesus. Churches sprang up everywhere. The gospel began to be preached in churches again. You know what preceded it? Economic collapse. You know who was the leader in the economic collapse? Insurance company in Cincinnati. They started the ball rolling. People lost thousands and thousands of dollars everywhere. Businesses closed. People couldn't get a job. People began to turn to God. And when they did, God answered. I, I wonder for us, you know, 9-11's in our rearview mirror now, isn't it? Distant memory. I remember I was pastoring church whenever that came around and a few people began to get serious about God, you know. But it faded pretty quick. I mean, the Sunday afterwards, the church was packed. And it was like that for about a month. And then people began to fade away. There was no real revival. People got scared for a minute. And then they got their bearings again in life and moved on. We don't want to be that way. If we want true revival, we need God to do it in our lives. And before it's going to happen, probably be some great difficulty come into our lives. But perhaps it's time for us to pray for those things. God, bring the discipline so that your people will look up and begin to seek you out. To have a rejuvenated, revived relationship with you. That will then in turn bring glory to you and also the gospel to the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the vision of revival here. What you can do. Lord, thank you for showing us the life of this one man who was courageous enough to pray for it even though it would be a great cost to him and to the people that he loved. Lord, I pray for your people in this day. Lord, that we would be willing to let go of anything and everything that would be a hindrance to you doing a great work in our hearts again. Lord, I pray that there would be such an outpouring of the Spirit of God in our day that the world around us, the community, would note that we're not one of them. That we're something other than them. And that we belong to you. And that your spirit lives in us. And Christ himself is at home in our hearts. 
And it has put us on a different plane. We walk at a different place. We have different hopes. We have different aspirations. We have different loves and affections. And there's just something different about us that they don't have. But Lord, I pray that even if no lost person would ever notice, Lord, I pray that we would notice that we love you like we ought to. And Lord, that you would gain glory from our lives just simply because we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Lord, would you stir that up in our lives? Perhaps beginning today even, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.